This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. I was reading about something this week called cognitive bias. Anybody ever heard that term? Cognitive bias. Here's what it is. It's a mistake in reasoning based on personal experiences or preferences. A mistake in reasoning based on personal experiences or preferences. You might also call this a mental filter. Now we all have these. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing to dig into and to think about because we've been dealing with the mind and we've been dealing about patterns of thinking and how your life is going to, this is a guarantee, your life is going to go in the direction of your strongest thoughts. That's a guarantee. Everything about you starts with a thought. Every decision you make starts with a thought. No action has ever happened in the history of humanity except that there was a thought that preceded it. You may have heard the term, well, I did that without thinking, or I just wasn't thinking. That's actually not true. You may have been thinking the wrong thing. You may have not thought it through thoroughly, right? But you did think, if only for a fraction of a second, it's impossible to make a decision or to complete an action without a thought, okay? Cognitive bias or mental filters is when the way you think or how you think or what you think is is impacted strongly by some life experience or experiences that you've had or some preferences that you have developed throughout your life as a matter of patterns of living. So I'll give you a couple of examples. It might be a little confusing so far. Let's take prejudice, for example. Racism, prejudice, discrimination. I would say that nearly everybody who has that inside of them, that they view people of different skin colors from different cultures and things like that, in a negative way, do so because they have a cognitive bias based on their own experiences. Wouldn't you say that? I grew up in a section of Southwest Virginia that was where, where racism and discrimination was prevalent. This area where we live right now has in its history notorious racism and prejudice, right? Um, in other words, a lot of us were raised around that, correct? And my parents were not that way, but I had uncles and aunts and cousins, relatives all around me 
that thought nothing of throwing the N-word around because that was just a regular word. For the, it was just part of their regular vocabulary. And there was a lot of language that was degrading, insulting, discriminating toward people of other colors, right? Because there was this, this disease of racism inside of them. And so when you grow up around that and you're a kid and you're impressionable, that stuff can get inside of you, all right? It can get inside of you to the point that the way you think even after you become an adult is filtered through that. You understand? So I could ask for a show of hands in here this morning, and if, if you're honest, there are going to be a lot of you in the room who would say that although you are, you know, past that in terms of really just being deliberately a, a blatant racist or whatever, um, you know, you wouldn't just go out and express yourself that way openly. But once in a while, in certain situations, you will think a certain way or say a certain thing or have a certain idea about different people that is filtered through that. Still, right? You love God. You're in relationship with God. But it still pops up. Am I right? I think I'm probably right. And how would I know that I'm right? Because I can tell you that it happens to me. Still. I'm 60 years old. I've been in full-time Christian service for 32, 33 of those years. I love God. I'm a loyal, obedient son of God. And yet still, those old filters still pop up, and my thoughts run through those filters from time to time. That's what cognitive bias is. And it's a mistake. Don't miss that word. It's a mistake in reasoning that is based on your personal experiences or your prejudices. So when, you, when the air conditioning kicks on in your house, what happens? Well, we know that the house gets cooler, but there's more than that that's happening. Why is it that they call it air conditioning and not just air cooling? It's because that the fact that the air is passing over a refrigerant, which makes it cooler when it comes out, uh, that's not the only thing that's going on. The, the air is actually being filtered and conditioned to make it healthier when you breathe it. Right? It's passing through a filter, so that it, when it comes out the other side, out through the vents in your home or your car, it's different air than it was when it went in. That's what happens when we have filters, mental filters, is something comes in, but it passes through our filter so that when it sets up inside of us or comes out of us, it's a different thing than it was when it came in. And cognitive bias can become the default filter for us if we live in patterns of thinking. So you know what the default is, right? You have, you have a default, um, you have lots of defaults on your cell phone, like your internet service. 
What's the default on your computer? What, in other words, what does your computer automatically go to when you click it on? In order to change what it automatically goes to, you'd have to do some work. You'd have to go through some steps in the process, right, to make that change. But you have the defaults. And we tend to allow default filters to set up in our minds which cause us to think certain ways about certain things out of our experiences, out of our preferences, and that's our automatic. It's automatically where our minds go to. Okay? So what do we do with all of that? If we're talking about the mind, if we're talking about taking control of the mind, if we're talking about doing what the Apostle Paul says when he says that we are to take every thought captive, bring it under the rulership, of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that when we have these filters set up? And listen, I'm not talking about this to pass judgment on anybody. Like I said, I'm, you know, I talk to me as much as anybody in this room when I'm talking. And it's not judgmental. It's not critical at all. And the reason I say that is because in large part, it's not our fault. It's not our fault. But just because something is not your fault doesn't make it right. Just because something is not your fault doesn't, need, doesn't mean it doesn't need to be corrected. You know, I don't, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks that, you know, you ought to blame everything. Like when I talked about relatives from my past when I was growing up, um, having certain attitudes toward people of other races. So I could go on Dr. Phil and say, well, I struggle in my mind with these things, but it's their fault. They're the ones that put that in me. You know, they're the ones that established that filter in my thinking, and, and don't blame me, it's on them. Now, I think when you become an adult, especially if you become an adult who decides to live in a relationship with the Lord, that you ought to make a decision that no matter whose fault it may be, you're going to do something about it. You're going to make a change. You're going to make a decision. You're going to get it fixed. Whatever it takes, you're going to get it fixed because it's just not right to have it there. It needs to be fixed. Okay? So if we, it, there are all kinds of people that can tell you it needs to be fixed, but who's going to tell you how to fix it? I think that we have a great example. We keep talking about the Apostle Paul. He's the one that said these ridiculous things. He's the one that said, I'm a mess. Everything I want to do that's right, I end up not doing it. Everything I don't want to do that's wrong, I end up doing it. I bounce back and forth. I'm dealing with this thorn in the flesh. I keep going to God. I'm asking him to help me with the thorn in the flesh. I'm asking him to take the thorn of the flesh away, and he keeps saying no. I'm not taking it away, but I'll tell you what, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll carry you through it because in your weakness, this thing you're dealing with, that's where the perfection of my power shows up. Don't you get it? Right? Paul's the one that teaches us all these things, so let's just look at him. Okay, let's just, let's just deal with the life of the Apostle Paul and see what we can learn in terms of practical steps to take us through the process of changing the mind and getting the mind right. Because the mind is an enormous problem for many of us. It's just a problem. 
Anybody deal with racing thoughts? Anybody deal with you just can't get the mind to calm down? Anybody deal with your mind just being in a turmoil, in a mess, just going in 10,000 directions? Anybody deal with ADD? Just about everybody in the room is an adult, but I can tell you that there is by all means such a thing as adult ADD because I get it several times a day. It's, there's an onset of adult ADD that attacks me. All I got to do is say, I'm going to spend the next two minutes praying about this particular situation. And 23 seconds into my two minutes, my mind has gone somewhere else. And two minutes after that, I'm sitting here going, what in the world happened? I was going to pray about that. That's, so I'm not the only one. Okay. <laughs> That's good news. That's comforting. So if we know it's there, if we know that we need to have more control, more governance over what's going on in the mind, if we really believe that there is a way for that to happen, for us to fix it, for us to make it better, for us to correct the things that are wrong, that don't belong, okay, if we believe that, if we believe that God is our source, I'll say it again, if you're not trusting in God, if you don't believe that, then I can't help you. But if we do believe that God is our source and we can go to Him and He will provide answers, then there are by all means some practical steps that we can go through. Look, I grew up in churches where the emphasis was just pray and ask God to do it and believe He'll do it and He'll do it and then you'll be okay. The only problem I ever had with that is this, it just never worked for me. <laughs> it just didn't. Oh, I've seen prayers prayed and I've seen instantaneous answers, but most of the time it just didn't, it just didn't happen like that. And what it seems to me like we just continued to ignore, and in large part we still continue to ignore it in the church at large, is that the Scripture is inundated with process. Step-by-step process. Be obedient to the steps. Commit yourself not to the end result, but to the process. If you want to get from here to there, be willing to take one step. Find out what are the practical steps and take the first one. Be obedient to the first call, the first mandate, and see what God does inside of that step of obedience. And then when you're ready and He makes you know that you're ready, you take the next step. This is why I call discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. Just continue to methodically and slowly put one foot in front of the other, and He will take you exactly where He wants you to go. Okay? Paul illustrates this for us with his life. All right. I did not ask them to put this whole thing up on the screen because it's too much. But I'm going to pick and choose parts of it here to read to you from Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to then paraphrase the story. You have this guy Saul who has been a persecutor of Christian people. 
Saul is the guy that in Acts chapter 6 was standing and watching and had likely given the order when religious Jews stoned Stephen to death. Remember that? He's standing there. He's actually tending to the cloaks, the coats, the jackets of the guys who are doing the stoning and is giving his confirmation and his blessing on what they're doing. And they beat the life out of this young fireball Christian preacher named Stephen. And, and Saul applauds it and moves on to persecuting other Christians, going door to door, having them dragged out of their homes, thrown in jail, parents separated from children, flogged in the public square, and sometimes put to death because of their faith. That's this man, Saul. In Acts chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anybody there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Have you ever, I mean, we, we know the story about Saul on the road to Damascus, but let's stop and think about the fact that he was actually on his way to Damascus to persecute and have Christians arrested. That's why he's going down the road. Okay? And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Practical steps one and two right there. Twice already during this service, and at least once in the previous however many services recently, I have said to you, if you don't know the Lord, if you're not interested in a relationship with God, I can't help you. What I'm here to tell you this morning is every single one of us has the opportunity for that relationship. And the first thing that is required is that you enter into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, the time is now. If you have not done that and you're dealing with the kinds of things that I've been talking about, fear, confusion, doubt, depression, anxiety, uncertainty, racing thoughts, if you are dealing with this emotional turmoil, don't try to go to step number two before you have dealt with step number one, which is to surrender and say, God, I need your help. Nothing will work after that until you have done that. Step one, practical step number one. Say, Father, I surrender. 
You can do it here right now. You can do it where you sit. You can do it up front. You can do it when you get home. You can do it in your closet. You can do it in your car. You can do it in the field. You can do it wherever you feel compelled to do it as the Spirit draws you. But you must surrender. How many people keep showing up at church, sitting on the pew, breathing air, taking up space, singing songs, throwing a dollar in the plate, who have never just fully thrown their hands up and surrendered their hearts and said, God, I'm yours. Do what you will do with me. Step one, surrender your life to the master. Now, Paul has a pretty dramatic experience that we're not likely to have. I could go home this afternoon, saddle up my horse, get on him, ride out the driveway, and probably I'm not going to get knocked off of him by a bolt of lightning and hear a voice out of heaven say, Jeffrey, what the heck are you doing? Nevertheless, I have the opportunity to run into the master and for him to run into me and for me to enter into that relationship. Was I not already in it? Encounter Christ. Step number two, powerfully important. I've learned this so much through the years how important this is. How absolutely necessary this is. Jesus answers him and says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now listen, here it is. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Practical step number two, just do what you're told. Okay, Jeff, I was good with the whole running into Jesus part, but I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I can figure out what to do myself. This is about a personal relationship. Don't tell me what to do. As long as you have that stubborn attitude towards spiritual authority, you will never, ever get where you're supposed to be. There are people in this room right now who are living, walking, breathing, victorious examples of what can happen, the transformation that can happen in your life if you will just do what you're told. You know what? When Jesus knocks you off of your horse into the dirt and calls your name, and you enter into that relationship with him, that doesn't mean you have arrived and you've got it all together and you're qualified to do everything and nobody can tell you what to do. No, that means you are now a baby and somebody needs to be telling you everything to do. And you just need to do it. Right? I told you, I've learned this through the years, and here's how I've learned it. We've had people come to City of Refuge out of terrible circumstances. I'll give you one example on the negative side. A man spent seven years in prison on drug trafficking, conspiracy, all these things. He gets out of prison. He goes to a halfway house. He hears about City of Refuge. He decides he wants to start coming to City of Refuge to church, to Midtown Mission when we were on 14th Street. 
And he shows up, and he's a, a, a pretty flamboyant personality. He was a member of the Dixie Mafia back in the days. He was a biker. He's big, muscular, tattooed, ball-headed, you know, Fu Manchu, tough guy. Right? Straight out of prison, just entered into a relationship with the Lord, and the man knew everything. He knew everything. You know what we did? We stood him up. We stood him up and said, look at this testimony. He's a hardcore, probably killed people, thief, drug runner, pimp, been in prison. Look what God has done. Let's stand him up as an example. Let's put his face on the, on the uh, propaganda that we send out. Let's tell his story. Let's, here's the worst part of it. Let's give him some authority and turn him loose to run a section of the ministry. Right? So he starts running the outreach, going under the bridges, feeding people, ministering to the homeless. Okay? And we bought a house on Brownsville Road off Cleveland Avenue for a men's recovery home. Put him in it to run the men's recovery home. But then I start hearing and seeing and things, and, and I know that he's still got some issues in his life he's dealing with. Issues with addiction, issues with women. So I bring him in, I set him down. Hey, you know, I just want to talk about these things. Oh, Brother Jeff, everything is good. Everything's fine. The Lord is in control. Uh, everything is in the darkness to be brought to light, and on and on and on. So we rocked along with that for a while. And finally, I just called him in and I said, Look, I'm not going to have a person running men's addiction recovery who's addicted. So what are we going to do here? So he walked out, left, and started his own ministry. So through the years, you know what's happened with the ministry? A lot, lot of negative reports, law enforcement, investigations, arrests, people in jail, in and out of jail, posting bail, uh, stories going on all over the place, women showing up saying this happened, that happened, the other happened over there, right? Why? Because... The proper process of discipleship was not followed before too much spiritual authority was turned over. Okay? I can tell you another story of someone sitting in the room. And I often use this guy as an example. But when Anton came to me, he said, Jeff, I need help. If I don't get it, I'm going to die. And I will do whatever you say. And that's what he did. I will do whatever you say. I said, well, Anton, it's going to require that you go away for a long period of time and leave your wife and your family here. I will do whatever you say. We'll take care of this. We'll take care of that. I'll do whatever you say. Well, I loaded him up and took him to South Georgia. We pulled up to the road that turns into Mighty Man. And I said, all right, get out, smoke your last cigarette. What? You can't smoke here. 
Anton got out of the car, fired one up, smoked about half of it, threw it in the dirt, stomped it out, threw the rest of the pack in the dirt, and said, I'll do whatever you say. For the length of the program, he never picked up another cigarette. He was not a rule breaker. He sought counsel. He followed the counsel. He graduated from the program, came back, and said, tell me what to do. I'll do what you say. Growth, progress, steps in the process, becoming a mighty man of God, slowly, methodically, one step at a time. Just do what you're told. We've got to lay down pride. We've got to lay down the arrogance. We've got to lay down the self-sufficiency. We've got to lay down our own agendas. We've got to say, Father, put the right people in my life that can tell me the right thing and then remind me daily to do what I'm told. The Apostle Paul has a great story. We talk about it. You know, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You know, There's a lot to say for the man. He's got, a, he's got a dynamic resume. He's got a great portfolio of accomplishments. But he simply came out and did what he was told. So we move on down, and Saul goes on down to Damascus. And there's a guy named Ananias, and the Lord calls to him in a vision and says, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias talks about how he's heard about this man, and yeah, I'm not real comfortable about this, but the Lord says, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes, he places his hands on Saul, and Saul regains his sight. He gets up, he's baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, so now Saul's good to go, right? He's ready to go preach, he's ready to go evangelize, plant churches, do missionary work, a disciple people. He's had this dramatic experience of encountering the Lord, right? He went down to Damascus. He, he uh, paid attention to what the prophet said, and he did it. So now he's good to go, right? No, 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 no. Saul's a baby. He's a baby. He needs somebody nursing him, somebody raising him up, somebody teaching him, somebody counseling him. He needs experience. He needs to take baby steps very slowly in the same direction. How do we know that it doesn't work to go the other way? Because we're told right here that he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of those who heard him were astonished. And they ask, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name? And yet Saul grew more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. But what happens next? There's a conspiracy to kill him, and they have to rush him out at night through an opening in the wall, 
And he goes back to Jerusalem and he tries to join the disciples, but they are afraid of him because they don't trust him. What's the problem here? Hasn't gone far long enough in the process. There's an expectation that something great is going to happen, some good work, some accomplishment that he can point to, but he has not walked through the steps in the process. He has not built a trusting relationship. Y'all know how long we've been doing this in Thomaston now? Believe it or not, on the 2nd of April, right around the corner, will be nine years. Nine years. I'm sorry, 2nd of April will be five years in this building, but it's been nine years since we've been doing outreach in Thomaston. Nine years. Okay. If I just showed up today, and this is honestly, and it's just me, don't, you know, I don't mean to slam anywhere to anybody. That's why I have a problem bringing in guest speakers. How many times have y'all had a guest speaker come in, whether I'm here or not? If I'm not here, who speaks? Him, him. Kendall has spoken. Anton has spoken. Why? Because these are people who are of the house. These are people who we've invested in, who think through the same filters in terms of ministry and the Word and relationship with God that I do. And I'm not saying we couldn't have a guest speaker come in and share something with you that wouldn't rock you. You know, that's not really the point. It's just that I believe in making an investment and walking through processes with people, processes that lead to growth and maturity in the kingdom, right? And to have a total stranger come in to try to invest something in you is probably not the most efficient manner of ministry, at least in my opinion. And I will qualify it as my opinion, okay? But if, I ju if this was my first Sunday here, this is sort of the issue I had, you know, and I'm down a rabbit trail now. I'm not going to go far down it, though, I promise. It's one of the little issues I always had with, like, denominational church is how often pastors change churches. How can you really lead people in processes of, of discipleship and maturity and growth when every time you turn around you got a new guy up front telling you what you ought to be doing? You know? So, and the, the denomination I grew up in, at that, back years ago, I don't know what it is now, the average tenure of a pastor in a church was 18 months. 18 months. And people barely know your name in 18 months. Anyway, I'm off that trail. If this was my first Sunday, there would be absolutely no reason for me to have an expectation that you were going to buy into what I'm saying. Okay. We've walked a journey together. We continue to walk together. If you go back and listen to a recording of me speaking nine years ago when we showed up here, you're going to find very little difference in what I'm saying right now and what I was saying back then. I've pulled up sermon tapes on cassette. Y'all remember those cassettes? You young folks don't even know what that is. But I found cassettes in boxes from the early 90s of me preaching, I don't know why y'all keep showing up because I just keep saying the same thing over and over. 
You know, I just keep saying the same thing. Might use a different story, but the message just doesn't change. I've been saying the same thing since I was a youth pastor here. I've been saying the same thing. Got run off from here for saying it, but still, not really. Walking a journey together. I think this is what it's supposed to look like. I think this is what it's supposed to be like. But Paul, he tries to jump in and start doing all this stuff. I mean, he's a, he's a charismatic guy. He's got a big personality. He's influential. But you can't go just from being this over here to being this over here, such a radical jump, and expect everybody just to jump on board with you immediately. You've got to walk through some steps. And so what happens? You get to um, verse... 30, it says, when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. <laughs> Dude, get out of here. You're too much trouble. You know, you're not ready for this. Tarsus is where he's from. That's his hometown. They sent him home. They say, it's not time. It's not, you know, I'm glad somebody had the, the wherewithal and the intuition just to send the guy home. Because if they had not sent Saul home, we wouldn't be talking about him right now. Right? Because what happened when he went home? Well, he went to work and made a living for one thing, but secondly, he dug in to the way of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ. He had conversations with people. He hung out with the right people. He jumped out and did low-level stuff, I'm sure, not out of the spotlight and out of the, the glamour and the glitz and all that, and just out there being a disciple, learning and growing and praying and doing practical ministry among the people. And he's growing up and being prepared for the thing that God really has in mind for him. But he has to go through the steps and the process. So i got to finish up. I'm going too long here. Step number three, then, is to do what? It's to do what Psalm 51 told us when I opened up the service. And that is to commit ourselves to daily renewal. Commit ourselves to daily renewal. I think that it would be appropriate to get up every morning and to do the same thing that the psalmist did in Psalm 51, and to say to the Lord, I'm asking you to create a pure heart in me today. Have you ever felt like you were in a pretty good spot in terms of the purity of your heart? You're living honestly. You're thinking well. You know, you're, you love the Lord, you're doing His work, you're speaking His words, but then all of a sudden you just sort of drift off track a little bit and you're not feeling so pure anymore and you're getting aggravated about stuff and, and you just go, go away from that for a minute. Anybody, anybody hap that happened to you? Well, doesn't that really emphasize to us how it would be a good idea to get up every morning and say, God, for today please create in me a pure heart establish a right spirit in me um give me your holy spirit i'm gonna i'm gonna look at it again so i don't i don't want to miss part of it here 
Because there's some language that's important. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit. When I read that, my mind immediately went to what we talked about last week when Paul uses the phrase, a sound mind. And I told you a couple weeks ago that in, in the house, in the church, when we're talking about the spirit, usually the spirit and the mind equate, equate to the same thing. So when Paul says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and what? A sound mind. I'm pretty sure the psalmist David is saying the same thing when he says to renew a steadfast spirit. There's something about that that sounds stable, solid, firm, secure. Create in me a pure heart and give me a steadfast spirit, a confident, solid spirit inside of me that's not wavering and flaky and bouncing all over the place depending on the circumstances of life, being, as the Scripture says, blown about, tossed about by whatever's happening around us. I love that. I've got a picture in my office of... of uh, and you've probably seen it. It's like a lighthouse, and there's a guy standing at the rail, and there's this violent storm blowing around, you know, in the background. But he's just he's just kind of standing there. That's a steadfast spirit. When you know, regardless of the storms that life's throwing at us, we got this real solid confidence inside of us on who God is and what He's doing and that we are His children. So to commit to daily renewal, Lord, create a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me, a steadfast spirit. And do not cast me away from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's another word of, of foundation, being solid, being firm, being secure. Sustain me. Give me a steadfast spirit. Give me a sound mind, a calm and peaceful mind, a resoluteness toward taking the next, next step in the process that you've called me to. So, encounter Christ. Do what you're told. Commit to daily renewal. I can validate this business of making this a daily thing all over the place through the Scripture. Paul, again, in Philippians chapter 2, says that each of us should work out our own salvation. That's not a one and done, y'all. I got some news for you. I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what your theology is or was. But being a child of God is not about praying a sinner's prayer and then you're good to go. Sorry. 
I'm sorry, but you just can't support that with Scripture. You, you cannot at all support that with Scripture. We've all been to those funerals where, you know, yeah, they prayed to sinner's prayer when they were eight years old at youth camp, so we don't have to worry about them. They lived like hell the rest of their lives, but, you know, they prayed that sinner's prayer when they were eight, so you can't even, you, you leave alone a theological perspective. That's not even logical. That's not even rational. Okay, I like the old preacher that stood up and said, well, old Henry here just busted hell wide open, so let me talk to the rest of you. Now, that's honesty, okay? It is about constant renewal, constant renewal, perpetual salvation. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation, and that is every day. Well, I can't work it out every day if I'm not consulting with him every day and asking him to renew a right spirit in me every day and to create a pure heart in me every day. I'm going to get lost somewhere along the way if I let periods of time lapse where I'm not really digging into that process. I'm going to get off track. Okay. I wrote this down this morning. If you don't believe this, or you just don't have the discipline to do it, to walk through the steps, and you choose to remain inconsistent, here's the result. Your lack of consistency will lead to a lack of consistency. Your lack of consistency will lead to a lack of consistency. If you're not willing to be consistent in your commitment to the process, then your relationship with Christ will always be inconsistent. You'll always be up and down, in and out, here and there, blown about by everything that's going on around you. Your lack of consistency will always lead to a lack of consistency. I appreciate y'all being here today. There's no reason for you to say, me to say anything to you about uh, not attending church because you're here but look, we're not, we're not all as consistent as we could be or that we should be because these times are very important. Now, these times are not going to save you. These times do not amount to the sum total of what you need in your walk of discipleship. But if you're just inconsistent with showing up for discipleship, then your walk with Christ is always going to be inconsistent. That's the inevitable fallout. So just take that and chew on it, do what you want to do with it. I think that the Lord is teaching us some really powerful, practical. Yeah, they're deeply spiritual, but they're powerfully practical too. Steps to take. Take them with you. Make sure you are living inside that first encounter with Christ, that you're doing what you're told, and that you're committing to daily renewal.